Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This episode of History of Portugal is brought to you by the generous members of our Patreon community. You too can support this project by going to patreon.com forward slash history of Portugal and select a level of support. And thank you so much to Antonio Rodrigues for signing up already. Hi, and welcome to History of Portugal. I'm Rob Mendez, and this is Episode 8, Alfonso II. Last episode, we covered the events that led to the fall of the Umayyad dynasty in the Middle East, and the subsequent splintering of Al-Andalus from the rest of the caliphate. We also covered the initial few decades of the emerging Asturian kingdom, and the shaky rise of Alfonso II to the throne. Today, we will be focusing on the reign of Alfonso II and the many challenges he faced. The 25 years preceding the reign of Alfonso II was a time where hostilities between the Christian and Muslim kingdoms was set at a low simmer, with small raids and skirmishes being the norm rather than any large-scale military operations. Long gone were the days when Roman generals and emperors were stomping around Europe with armies that numbered in the tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands. In general, the early medieval kingdoms of Europe could, at most, only field a few thousand men at a time. When we discuss battles in this period, you have to remove from your mind's eye the picture of medieval battle that Hollywood has propagated, of thousands of men running suicidally at each other with reckless abandon. These were usually much, much smaller affairs, involving a few hundred men at most. The more common clashes were skirmishes, involving a few dozen men. The chronicles and histories that are passed down to us are always exaggerating the number of combatants, 
to increase the glory and prestige of their particular monarch. Hence why we're always guessing at the true size of these battles. Both the Asturian and Umayyad kingdoms were way too busy dealing with succession conflicts that diverted the majority of their respective attention and resources inwards. It is recorded that the newly minted emir, Abdallahman, did send expeditions north against the Asturians from time to time. But these excursions don't seem to have yielded anything beyond some plunder. As usual, there is a severe lack of documentary evidence especially when it comes to the Asturian kingdom at this time. So, subsequently, we don't really know much from the Asturian perspective as it relates to these types of small-scale conflicts. What we do know is that while Abdallahman was busy consolidating power and putting down successive revolts and challenges to his rule, the Asturian monarchs had been doing much the same consolidating their own power and expanding their territory laterally to encompass Galicia in the west and Basque territory in the east. In 788, three years before the ascension of Alfonso II, Abdallahman, the first emir of Al-Andalus, died. At the time of his passing, his three sons all vied for the throne, and predictably, a civil war broke out that lasted for two years. The ultimate victor of this conflict was the second eldest son, Hisham I. Hisham found himself in a position that no other Arab leader up to this point had been in, with a mostly peaceful home front, which meant that Hisham could now give his undivided attention to that irritating rebellion in the north a task to which he turned to with energetic focus and would subsequently ignite a war that dominated the rest of both his and Alfonso II's reigns. As much as medieval Muslim chroniclers like to paint the upcoming campaigns of Hisham as fervent religious endeavors, the likely reasons are much more pragmatic just framed in religious terms to cover the emir and his motives in a holy shroud. Declaring holy war on the Asturians actually served multiple purposes. First, it would send the Umayyad armies to the aid of those Muslims that still resided in the half-abandoned desolate areas that Alfonso I created and that were frequent targets of Asturian raids. This aid would help to ensure the continued loyalty of those same Muslims and provide an opportunity for the Umayyads to inflict retribution upon any Asturians that dare to come down from the mountains to settle on the plains. Second, by proclaiming jihad, the emir garnered the support of the conservative Orthodox Muslim population, which was pretty critical at this point, since the Umayyad regime of Iberia was under constant ideological attack by the Abbasid Caliphate as not being a legitimate Islamic state. Third, it also served to keep all the different factions of Al-Andalus focused and fighting on a common enemy instead of each other. And fourth, the war would fulfill the economic objective of getting loot and slaves since slaves were in very high demand throughout the Islamic world, 
and the emir was entitled to a fifth of the loot taken during a campaign. As mentioned before, the Asturian monarchy pre-Alfonso II had been quite busy expanding its territory and attempting to consolidate its military resources. This was not accomplished easily. There was a lot of local resistance against the Asturian monarchs just coming in and taking over, especially in Galicia and in Basque country. There were numerous rebellions in those regions that had to be put down quite violently. A consequence of these colonizing conquests and their resulting rebellions was the decimation of the local aristocracy. Those vacant positions were now filled by nobles who were handpicked by the Asturian kings. This had the intended effect of creating a new upper aristocracy that owed its position to the Asturian crown, and in theory cemented a firmer loyalty to the monarch. This new social dynamic allowed for certain individuals to begin to accumulate ever-increasing wealth through land acquisition under royal auspices. Importantly, the great power these individuals possessed emanated through the king. And great local power was paramount to be able to organize and control these newly conquered territories. And this was basically the state of affairs when Alfonso II ascended to the throne. An interesting thing to note. When Christian sources refer to Alfonso in this particular time, he is referred to as the king of Galicia and the Asturias. So we can see here that already in the early days of the kingdom, that Galicia was recognized as a separate political entity, and Basque country was not far behind. Once in power, one of the moves Alfonso made was to move the Asturian capital once again, this time from Pravia to Oviedo. Sources don't specify as to why exactly this move was made, but the reasonable assumption is that Oviedo was where his power base was located, or at least it was a location where he had more support. During his reign, Alfonso began an extensive building program in the capital, constructing numerous churches, repairing and upgrading altars, along with building new royal residences and storehouses. The art and architecture of all of these new structures emphasized links to the previous Visigothic regime, often referred to as New Visigothic Style. The Albeda Chronicle states, quote, he established the order of the Goths, as it had been in Toledo, in church and palace alike, unquote. What exactly the chronicle meant by that has been the subject of endless debates. Regardless of its precise meaning, though, it nevertheless underscores the efforts that Alfonso II was making in order to create a new royal Visigothic cultural superstructure to overshadow and eventually replace the native Asturian aristocratic traditions and claims to power. It's theorized that there was an influx of refugees from the frontier regions, 
in particular from the city of Toledo, which at this point was right on the border of the militarized zone. These urban, educated refugees brought with them their traditions of law and learning of the Visigothic past, and were a critical component of the propaganda scheme of the Asturian kings to legitimize their right to rule. On the diplomatic front, it's noted in the sources that Alfonso II and his court were in regular contact with the court of the grandson of Charles Martel, Charles the Great, more commonly known as Charlemagne. Yes, that Charlemagne. The power of the Franks had only increased since the days of Charles Martel. They expanded territorially in literally every direction. Francia roughly encompassed what is modern-day France, Switzerland, Germany, the Netherlands, Belgium, parts of Czechia, Austria, Slovenia, Croatia, and half of Italy. Whew, those guys were relentless. Now, importantly for our purposes, the Frankish conquest of France include Arab-controlled Septimania back in 759, and the Pyrenees mountain range, including the city of Barcelona in 778. So now it was official. The Franks had a foothold in the Iberian Peninsula. And being the only other Christian power nearby, it was natural for the Asturian and Carolingian monarchies to develop deeper political ties with each other. The Frankish author Einhard wrote in the 820s that within the diplomatic exchanges between the two courts, Alfonso made it a point that in front of Charlemagne, he was to be referred to as the king's subject. While this is somewhat of a dubious claim, since there are no other sources to back it up, it's still well within the realm of possibility that Alfonso took this approach for a few reasons. Beginning with the fact that the Franks and the Charlemagne were by far the biggest, baddest power in Europe. Add to that that Charlemagne was given the title of Emperor of the Romans by Pope Leo III, along with the reality that the Franks were busy expanding into Iberia, it starts to make sense that Alfonso would present himself in the most non-threatening way possible. There is also evidence that suggests that the Asturian and Frankish religious institutions were in contact with each other. There is a claim that church reforms that were taking place in Francia were being forwarded to Oviedo by the allegedly Gothic bishop Theodolf of Orléans. But this particular claim of church exchanges is not uniformly accepted by historians as legitimate. During the initial years of Alfonso's reign, military confrontation with the emirate was pretty limited. Since the emirate was increasingly occupied with defending Septimania from Frankish attacks, Arab sources state that in the year 794, the emir organized two expeditions to the north. The first was sent to Basque territory, and the second was sent out against the Asturian kingdom. Hisham's principal generals were two brothers, 
Abd al-Karim, who was in charge of the first expedition, and Abd al-Malik, who was sent to the Asturias. The first expedition is recorded as an Arab victory. The second expedition, led by Abd al-Malik, actually started very well for the Arabs. They engaged in scorched-earth tactics, destroyed crops, plundered churches, and destroyed villages. They also managed to besiege and sack the Asturian capital of Oviedo. And this was no small feat. The Arabs faced a logistical nightmare when making incursions into the Asturias, where once again geography played a decisive role. The Asturian highlands were characterized by winding paths, deep gorges, and sharp precipices. Any baggage train carrying supplies would be incredibly stretched out and vulnerable. The terrain made both mounted and wagon transportation a near impossibility, essentially negating any cavalry force from being effective in battle. And when you consider that the emirate relied heavily on cavalry, this posed a huge problem. In short, the Asturias was an extremely difficult place for a conventional armed force to operate in, which was a big factor as to why the Arabs never really controlled that much over the northern lands of the peninsula. On the flip side of this coin, the mountainous terrain provided a tactical advantage to the Asturians. The Asturian army was composed of indigenous people who lived in these conditions their whole lives. So, in terms of local knowledge of the terrain, along with the physical and mental capabilities required to traverse this tough terrain on foot, these guys were invaluable. This knowledge and experience was put to good use in the form of ambushes and hit-and-run tactics by the Asturians. But anyway, once satisfied with the destruction they had wrought, the Umayyad army, now overloaded with loot and prisoners, began making their way back to Al-Andalus. While the Umayyads were passing through modern-day Los Lodos, sources claim that local guides led the Arab army to a location where Alfonso and his army were lying in wait to spring an ambush. And when the Arabs arrived at the predetermined location, they were caught completely flat-footed. Alfonso led his forces personally and managed to inflict a devastating blow to the Arab army, where the majority of their forces were destroyed and the general, Abd al-Malik, was killed in the fighting. This tactic of waiting until the enemy was on their way back from a raid loaded with loot and then launching ambushes in narrow valleys became a favorite among the Asturians, making the best use of their limited military resources. Not one to let this kind of thing go unpunished, Hisham ordered a new military expedition against the Asturian kingdom. He received word that Alfonso was currently making his own war preparations and regrouping his troops in the city of Astorga. Once again, the emir appointed Abd al-Karim as the general in charge of a new campaign. 
with the official objective of defeating the Asturian army and the unofficial objective of actually capturing Alfonso II alive and taking him prisoner. Yeah, plot twist. Understanding how critical time was, Abdal Karim dispatched his entire cavalry ahead of the army to reach Astarga before Alfonso could regroup. Arab sources claim that the cavalry numbered 4,000 horsemen. Though this number is of course suspect, it is nonetheless demonstrative that this was a large force that was headed Alfonso's way. Hisham was not playing around. That last defeat demanded a response of overwhelming force. Abdal Karim's forces caught the Asturians off guard and commenced a wholesale slaughter, steamrolling and scattering the Asturian army. One Muslim source described the event as follows, quote, His bravest warriors, two Christians, perished in battle, and those who requested quarter and fell into our hands, who were very numerous, were executed by the order of Abdal Karim. Next, the cavalry dispersed in order to devastate the inhabited places, destroying all the crops and buildings that it found in its path." Unquote. After thoroughly laying waste to Astorga, the Umayyad army regrouped and headed towards Oviedo, again. While en route, the Umayyad army was attacked by a Christian force led by an Asturian noble named Gundemaro. This attack was a spectacular failure for the Asturians, who were resoundingly defeated, and Gundemaro was taken as prisoner. Now, the road to Oviedo was wide open, so the Arab army wasted no time besieging and sacking the city. And while the siege was underway, Abdal Karim launched a pursuit of Alfonso in an attempt to capture him, forcing the Asturian king to run and hide from place to place ever deeper into the wilderness, until eventually the Arabs gave up the chase. Now loaded with even more loot, Abdal Karim turned his army south and headed towards Cordoba, officially ending the campaign. So, in a very short period of time, Alfonso suffered two overwhelming military losses that decimated and scattered his forces. And add to that all the pillaging and destruction that the Umayyads inflicted on the countryside. This was not a typical raid. This was revenge and punishment. Even though they failed in their clandestine objective of capturing Alfonso, this was a very successful campaign for the Umayyads. They inflicted large losses on the Asturian army. They destroyed towns and crops. And they sacked the enemy's capital city. Overall, this was an excellent first step in Hisham's greater plan to destroy the Asturian monarchy once and for all. And finally, incorporate the rebellious north into the emirate. But as fate would have it, about a year later, in 796, Hisham I died at the age of 40. And with him, 
died any real possibility of the Umayyads conquering the Christian north. You see, Hisham had been in a very unique position of having a claim to the throne that wasn't much disputed. Consequently, he did not have to deal with the never-ending consecutive rebellions that his predecessors did have to deal with and that his successors were destined to deal with as well. So he enjoyed the luxury of being able to focus his time, energy, and military resources almost exclusively on the north. Had he not died when he did, Hisham might have actually been able to pull off his ambition of uniting the whole peninsula under the emirate. But he did die when he did. And when the crown was passed to Hisham's second son, Al-Hakam I, it predictably sparked a new round of civil wars and, of course, rebellions in Al-Andalus. However, before those problems had a chance to rear their heads, it seems like one of the first things Al-Hakam did upon taking power was to send a raiding expedition to the region of Cantabria, which was apparently successful. But before he had a chance to follow up on the success, the political instability of his kingdom forced his attention away from the Christian north, and it would be some time until a new expedition could even be organized. Taking advantage of the internal chaos of Al-Andalus in either 797 or 798, Alfonso II launched a daring attack on the Muslim south, where the king and his men raided all the way to Lisbon itself. Though they didn't have the resources to actually take and occupy the city, this particular raid is illuminating as to the military capabilities that Alfonso was able to muster at this point. And I have to admit that I was a bit surprised when I came across this information that this raid even happened. It takes a large degree of logistical and political control to pull off a large raid like this, especially so far away from home base. It's a shame that there is such a scarcity of information on the Asturian inner workings of this time, because we just don't know how this was pulled off. Interestingly, one of the most obscure yet significant events of his reign took place about three years after the raid on Lisbon, where some sources indicate that yet another coup overthrew Alfonso II, where he was forced into a kind of house arrest in the monastery of Abalania. Unfortunately, the sources don't name names as to who was behind this coup, but it's possible that it was the same political faction that was opposed to the ascension in the first place. But that is just an educated guess. Though details are scarce, we do know that a group of nobles who supported Alfonso II were led by someone named Teoda. They proceeded to bust Alfonso out of the monastery and reinstate him back on the throne. Once again, we are not given any details for these events. What we do know is that by the year 808, Alfonso is recorded making donations to the Church of Oviedo, 
which leads to the safe assumption that he was back in power by that date. It seems that the group that reinstated Alfonso back to power was composed almost exclusively of nobles of Visigothic descent. Church witness records show an abundance of Germanic names that make up the inner circle of Alfonso II, which is yet another piece of the puzzle of how Alfonso made such an incredible effort to link the Asturian monarchy to the old Visigothic one. The rest of Alfonso's reign was marked by tit-for-tat raiding and skirmishes. Notably, though, since the death of Hisham I, the quality, scale, and frequency of the Umayyad raids declined precipitously. No longer were the Asturians fighting for survival with their backs against the wall. They now had the breathing room to focus on further development of the kingdom, its internal structures, and military capabilities. One of the last recorded events of Alfonso's reign before his death is a curious one. The city of Merida had by this point become a hotbed of rebellion against the Emirates, necessitating periodical campaigns to be launched from Cordoba to put down the rebels. The latest of these rebels was a Berber by the name of Mahmoud. He killed the governor of Merida and sparked what has been characterized as a civil war with the emir for about 10 years. In one of those the enemy of my enemy is my friend situations, in 833, Mahmoud was welcomed by Alfonso II and placed in a position of power in Galicia. Sources don't agree as to why, but seven years later, Mahmoud did what he did best by betraying Alfonso and launching yet another rebellion, where he proceeded to attack the Galician countryside. Alfonso responded by gathering his army and launching his own attack on the rebels. The final showdown took place in the form of a siege on the castle of Santa Catarina, where Mahmoud and the rebels took refuge in. We're not given any details on the siege. All that's reported is that the rebels were defeated and Mahmoud's severed head was presented to Alfonso. I think the story is quite useful in demonstrating the very fluid nature of alliances in this period, and how usually pragmatism overruled any religious concerns. Just a couple of years after this event, in 842, Alfonso II died at the age of 82, and he had ruled the Asturias for 51 years. Alfonso's reign was a remarkable one for many reasons. Not only does he hold the record for the longest reign of any Asturian monarch, he was able to resist the Umayyads just long enough for them to implode, and then seized on the opportunity to launch his own counterattacks on the Emirates. He oversaw numerous construction projects that complemented and reinforced his neo-Visigothic cultural program. All in all, I think that we can classify his kingship 
as a success for the Asturian Kingdom. Next time on History of Portugal, we will follow the trials and tribulations of the Asturian monarchs as they attempt to navigate rebellions, civil wars, and of course, the ever-looming threat of the Emirates. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mm.